We are slowly but surely making our way through the gospel according to John on Sunday mornings. Took 160 lessons, but we are now in John 19. We are excited to start a new chapter today. We are now going to study the severity of Jesus' sufferings. What Jesus went through was a very violent process. And He did it all for wicked sinners. In chapter 18, we saw Jesus' betrayal by Judas Iscariot, His arrest by a mob made up of religious Jews and a Roman cohort. We saw as Jesus was brought before Annas, who was like a godfather in a bad way. Then he was brought, Jesus was brought before Caiaphas, who was the high priest, and then before Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea, then Herod Antipater, and now back to stand before Pilate. Remember that at the close of chapter 18, we saw how the Jews had a custom at the Passover where they would release a prisoner. It was a symbol of what God had done for Israel in releasing them from bondage in Egypt. And Pilate had declared to the multitude that he had found no fault in Jesus. And he asked the mob, Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? But they cried out, Not this man, but Barabbas. And with that, let's pick up in chapter 19 and read verses 1 through 15. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, He was the more afraid. And went in again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speaketh thou not unto me? Knowest not that I have the power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought forth Jesus and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. In verse 1, we read that Pilate scourged Jesus. There's some debate over whether or not Pilate was the man with the whip in his hand doing the actual scourging or if it was a Roman soldier who was administering this punishment. I believe personally it was a Roman soldier. 
Pilate, being the governor, I think, had people to do that kind of thing for him. Here's Jesus being scourged. But what did Pilate already declare about Jesus? He said he was innocent. How'd you like to live under that judicial system? So here's this innocent man, and he's being scourged as a guilty man. And most agree, as do I, that Pilate at this point is likely trying to appease the crowd while also trying to release Jesus. He knows Jesus is innocent, but he also knows the crowd wants Jesus dead. And so in an effort to try to please the crowd and still be able to release Jesus, he decides to scourge Jesus even though he's an innocent man. And and I would just say a side note here for those who are in leadership positions who always try to please everyone, they will no longer function as a leader in the process. You don't have to be a jerk about things, amen? But sometimes tough decisions are the right decisions. They won't always please everyone. You may remember this saying, you can please some of the people all the time, you can please all of the people some of the time, but you cannot please all of the people all the time. And I don't think Pilate necessarily wanted to go through with this, but he's trying to please all the people all the time. You may recall in Matthew's account that Pilate's wife had come to him and said, have nothing to do with this just man, for I've suffered many things in a dream this night. She had had these nightmares about what was taking place, and she tells Pilate, you need to, you need to get away from this situation. In fact, in Luke's account, in Luke 23, 20, we read that Pilate was willing to release Jesus. And in verse 22 over there, Pilate said, I will therefore chastise him and let him go. I'll scourge him and let him go. That was his plan. And so he wants to free Jesus, please the mob. And when you understand the process of being scourged, you can see how he thought this tactic might work. Under Rome's system of capital punishment, once somebody was going to be crucified, it was always preceded by being scourged. Scourging was a very gruesome, a very brutal punishment. It was so excruciating that it was known as half-death. It was known as pre-death death. And the goal was to bring a person up to the point of death, but not let them die. Jesus would have had His hands bound in front of Him. Most believe that the whipping post there was about half height. And Jesus would have been laid over that with His hands out there, His body away from the post. Some say the post may have been higher. In that case, Jesus would have had His hands above Him to be whipped. Don't think of a long whip. This was a very short whip. The handle had attached to it these leather straps, and they would tie knots as they went down the leather strap, and inside of those knots they would embed things. They would embed hard metal objects. They would embed sharp metal objects, sharp pieces of bone and glass, and Some would even put hooks on the end of their lashes there in order to better grip the flesh and rip it away from the body. Hard metal objects were added to cause deep contusions 
while the sharp objects were designed to rip flesh away. Depending on how the one did the flogging, the straps of the whip would wrap around the sides of the body and sometimes the front side of the body. And they, they could whip from the head down to the feet. Sometimes the lashes would go around the face. They would lose their eyes and things of this nature. And they didn't have a system like God gave Israel. God said if you, if you whip a man, you can only go up to 40 lashes. Rome didn't care. They would take as many lashes as they wanted, as they felt was necessary to bring you up to the point of death. It was common for muscles to be exposed. Sometimes arteries would become exposed and blood would be going everywhere. In extreme cases, the kidneys would be exposed. Bones could be exposed. It was not uncommon for the person being scourged to faint. It was not unheard of for the person being whipped to die while still attached to the whipping post. This is God. This isn't a malefactor. This isn't a criminal. This isn't a murderer. This is the man who gave life. In Jesus giving Himself to this excruciating punishment, Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' sufferings were being fulfilled. Psalm 129.3 says, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Isaiah 50 and verse 6 says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. And then we see following this horrific beating, the mockery that took place in verses 2 and 3. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. The Roman soldiers, knowing that Jesus was before them, being one who was known as King of the Jews, had constructed a crown made of thorns, and they pressed this crown into the head of Christ. Understand that thorns were not a part of God's original creation. Thorns came about later after the fall of mankind, after Adam and Eve decided to reject God and His Word so that they might become like God. God then cursed the ground and thorns grew up. Thorns are a part of the curse after sin entered the world. And here's Christ, a perfect man. And the thorn curse of this earth is made into a crown and it is mashed into His sinless head. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He literally became a curse for us, and we see that pictured in this crown of thorns. Also, what we could find illustrated for us is Jesus as our great shepherd leads His sheep through sin-cursed thorns of this world. He clears the way. He's the breaker of Micah 2.13 who prepares the way for the sheep going ahead of them. And He clears out the sin of this world, the thorns of this world, in order that you may know that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and the sheep can enter therein. Amen. Amen. And we find in this crown a very rude espousal crown for the 
Son of God who was purchasing His bride to Himself. And as the hymn writer of My Jesus, I Love Thee so appropriately put it, I love Thee for wearing the thorns on Thy brow. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. And then after that, they put a purple robe on Him. We learn from Matthew that they also put a reed in His hand to imitate a scepter. And all three of these items were used to mock Jesus' royalty. And in verse 3 of our text, we see that they mocked Jesus by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. In Matthew and Mark, we learn that when they said these words, they would kneel down in front of Him, mocking Him even further. We also learn that they spit upon Him. They used the reed to hit Jesus in the head. And I believe they probably drove the crown of thorns deeper into His head. And we see in our verse that they also smote Jesus with their hands. And for those who would dare claim in the modern psychology movement that man is inherently good, they ought to read this passage. Jesus went through all of this after being judged innocent. There's no limit to man's depravity. You may look at somebody and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. You are that bad. It is but by the grace of God. Now in verse 4 we see, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. And this brings us back to the thought that Pilate is still hoping to release Jesus. We see that Pilate is going to bring forth Jesus before them, that they may know he has found no fault in him. And then verse 5 says, Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. You know, none of this was a surprise to Jesus. He had told His disciples this was going to happen, that He was going to be mocked and scourged. He said in Matthew 20, 18 and 19, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. and They shall condemn Him to death, and shall deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify Him. And the third day He shall rise again. And so can you picture this scene in your mind? Jesus now is a lacerated, bloody mess. He's adorned in mockery with a crown of thorns, a purple robe, and a reed for a scepter, and He's put on display after having endured such contradiction of sinners. Isaiah 52, 14 says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Jesus was beaten so badly that He was no longer recognizable. And this is the result. This is what we find when lost mankind has an opportunity to dwell on this earth with the God who created them. Think about what's happening. God has robed Himself in flesh. And He has tabernacled among men. He's dwelling among men. And this is how He treated them. The precious Lamb of God. Now this will be a sermon for another time, but when He comes again, it will be a different story. Because He will then come as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. For today though, we see the hatred of mankind toward the innocent. Holy God who created them. This is how the God of heaven who breathed into man the breath of life is treated. 
We were at enmity with God. And why? What, what did he ever do? He only went about doing good. Amen? And they hated him. What amazing grace that would save a wretch like me. We are so depraved apart from Christ. There is no end to our wickedness apart from God dwelling in us. And of course, that's the major difference. Whether or not God is dwelling among us or whether or not God is dwelling in us. And we may try to appear like God is dwelling in us and among us, but is He really? How long have we in this nation tried to pretend that God is dwelling among us without having God dwelling within us? Listen, we're no different than this group was 2,000 years ago. This is how they treated innocent life. Our new president in his inaugural address referenced the Bible, quoted the Bible even, talked of faith, and closed his speech with the customary, may God bless America. But then, only two days later, on the 48th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the following statement was released. The Biden-Harris administration is committed to codifying Roe v. Wade and appointing judges that respect foundational precedents like Roe. I believe the Bible and I have faith and may God bless America, but we are all in on appointing judges that will stand for babies being murdered in the womb. And over 60 million of them in our nation have died, quote-unquote, legally. God's not dwelling in us. Such hypocrisy. What hypocrisy to speak of a, quote, climate in crisis. And a cry for survival comes from the planet itself. A cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear, end quote. And yet ignore the silent cry of the babies being killed. How sad. How pathetic to say before God and all of you, I give you my word and I will always level with you. I will defend the Constitution. And then immediately trample over the very document that guarantees the pursuit of life. We may think God is dwelling among us, but look around our nation and you will quickly learn God is not dwelling within us. All that we have seen over these past days politically is nothing more than a show. And this presentation by Pilate of Jesus is nothing more than a show. It wasn't for justice. He had already found him innocent, and yet he treats him as a guilty man. But this was a, a show and an attempt to try and convince the crowd that Jesus was no threat. So at the end of verse 5, Pilate, having brought Jesus forth before the multitude, famously says, Behold the man. Harry Ironside wrote, one would have thought the sight of that patient suffering one standing there with the thorny crown pressed on his brow and the purple robe on him and with a reed in his hand and blood pouring down his face would have been enough to soften the hardest heart and break down the strongest opposition. But there is in that in the heart of a natural man which leads him to hate that which is holy, to hate perfect righteousness. Pilate says, behold the man. Here he is. Here's the man that you're so envious of. Here's the man who, according to you, is traitorous and dares to defy the Roman Empire. 
Behold, the man whom ye say is an enemy to Caesar. Does he look like a threat to you? But this did not content the mob's madness. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. In Mark's account, Pilate says, Why, what evil hath he done? And yet the mob doubles down on their desire to see Jesus killed. The Bible says of that council over in Mark that they cried out more exceedingly, Crucify him. Pilate gave them Barabbas and it didn't work. Pilate scourged Jesus and it didn't work. Pilate declared Jesus innocent and it didn't work. And so now Pilate doesn't know what to do exactly. He wants to release Jesus, but he also wants to please the council. So he says at the end of verse 6, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. This is now the second time that Pilate has tried to push this back upon the council. Remember in the previous chapter that Pilate said, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. I don't want to deal with this. They responded in chapter 18, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And here in chapter 19, he tries to push the crucifixion off onto them, knowing that they can't legally. But they respond with, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Now isn't it interesting that the mob here that is so intent on killing Jesus, they reference the law of God that they are breaking in order to see Jesus condemned. It's interesting to me how religious people can be and can twist the Word of God into what they want it to say and what they want to hear. Sure sounds similar to some of our leaders today who mishandle the Word of God in order to justify their sinfulness. I cringe every time one of those snakes gets up and quotes the Word of God for their wrong policy. Oh, I would hate to be them on the day of judgment. Well, upon hearing this, we see in verse 18 that Pilate was the more afraid, which means he had already been afraid. What was he afraid of? Perhaps he had been afraid because his wife had told him that he should have nothing to do with this just man. They were a very superstitious people. Perhaps he was afraid how this would look on his career. Imagine the report going back to Rome that, trying to think of the right phrase without saying something I shouldn't, that it has hit the fan in Jerusalem. Imagine how that would look on his career, amen? Maybe he was afraid because of Jesus' popularity. He knew he had a large following and maybe this would affect how Pilate was received there. Perhaps he was just fearful of the uncertainty of not knowing how all of this was going to unfold. Whatever the case, he was afraid and now he is the more afraid upon hearing from the council that Jesus had called himself the Son of God. And I don't know about you, but I get heartbroken. I'm sorrowed every time I think about how the religious Jews miss the Messiah and yet they could say things that were true about Him. It breaks my heart. He made Himself the Son of God. You got that right. He was the Son of God. How did you miss it? How did you miss it? So why was Pilate even more afraid? Well, I found this interesting, but in those days, at this point in Roman history, in their worship of the Greek gods, 
there was a tradition that the gods like Zeus and Apollos would take on human form, come down to earth, and they would make themselves known. And depending on how they were treated would depend on how much judgment would fall. Pilate would have been the more afraid because he's thinking, where did this guy come from? Is this a god? Do I need to be very careful how I treat this matter? And Pilate also knows he has to be careful because the Jews' beliefs, he knew their beliefs on God and how this was offending them and this would incite even more violence on their behalf if it's not dealt with right. And so naturally, Pilate questions Jesus again. And just a side note here, this will be the last time that Jesus is questioned through this process. And if you'll look back and analyze what we've studied so far, this is the sixth time Jesus is on trial. He stood before Ananias, Caiaphas, Pilate once, Herod, Pilate again, and now Pilate a third time. And so here he is, he's standing before Pilate again. Pilate enters back into the judgment hall and look at uh, verse 9, it says, and, when, and went in again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? I need to know where you're from. But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate saying, look, are you from above or not? Have you ever wondered why Jesus doesn't say anything? We know it was prophesied. We know Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so openeth not his mouth. We know that. And I suppose that's a good enough reason in and of itself, amen. But I think, at least me, still curious, why didn't Jesus say anything? Because we do find that he responded to the council. We do find that he responded to Pilate when they were talking about the kingdom. And yet here on this instance, Jesus doesn't say anything about where he's from. Why? Why not? Well, the Romans had no problem conquering earthly kings, amen. They were rather good at it. But at the same time, they almost had this respect for the gods of the people that they conquered because they believed in a multitude of gods. And what's interesting is Paul talks about this. Why doesn't Jesus say, look, I'm from above, I am the Son of God? Because what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.8, he writes, which none of, this, none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, had they known who Jesus was, he says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Here's Jesus on trial to this Gentile who believes in these gods, and if Jesus were to open his mouth and say, yeah, buddy, I am from above, Pilate may have been... Um, tempted to let Jesus go at that point, but we know God had other plans, right? And so Jesus keeps his mouth shut. Jesus wasn't going to jeopardize his Father's will, which included all these sufferings. Makes you excited about the will of God, doesn't it? And I already know we're not going to get to verse 15. So we're going to abruptly call this short on this thought. Can you, like Christ, give yourself over to the will of God? Here's an even better question. Can you be quiet in the process? Or do you feel the need to gripe and complain every time life doesn't turn out the way you want it to? 
Everything's so unfair. I believe if we are to mature in Christ, then we must learn to give ourselves over willingly to the will of God. And we have to be willing to say, Lord, not my will, but Thine be done. Whatever You want from my life, You do that with my life. And I can tell you that Thanksgiving weekend in November of 1998, I was down at the Haven in Coonsaw Air Force Base and I bowed before God at an old-fashioned altar and I said, God, You do with my life as You see fit. I don't have anything to offer. I don't turn wrenches very well. I don't even think I could know how to read a tape measure, to be honest with you. But I said, God, I can speak. And if You'll use my life, I give everything I have to You. Have you done that? Have you done that? Are you willing for whatever God chooses in your life? And how many times have we heard the testimonies of people who delayed their obedience only to say, I was afraid God was going to call me to Africa or to here or to there or to be a pastor. Or to do. 1 Peter 2, 20-23 says, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow His steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously. God, whatever you want... The events we have considered today are Christ's example to us. And if we suffer for doing well or for righteousness' sake, then we should learn to take it patiently because this is what is pleasing to God. We see that even though Christ was innocent, He was still reviled, yet when He was reviled, He didn't revile again, which means when He was reproached, He didn't retaliate. And as Jesus suffered He did not threaten them in return. Rather, Jesus trusted God. Jesus was scourged, mocked, spit upon, slapped, had a crown of thorns pressed into His brow, and yet in all of His sufferings, He never attempted to stop it. He never attempted to retaliate because He knew that that was acceptable to God. This is one of the marks of a mature Christian How many here today are still immature babes in Christ when it comes to trials and sufferings that God brings into your life? Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And if you feel like you can't keep going, if you feel like it's been enough, if you feel like things are unfair, look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus. When you look unto Jesus, you realize He went through far more than you'll ever go through. And who are you to complain about what He's doing in your life? He went through more than we ever will. So why should you complain about how God is working in your life? One of the hardest things to learn is to just be quiet. You know, I think that's even more true today than it ever has been in history. We have our little smartphones now. Remember when a phone used to be a telephone? I remember when our county got 911, it was on the front page of the newspapers because everybody finally had a touchstone phone. 
Now you can get on your phone and you can do God knows what. I'd be willing to say some here haven't been able to refrain from looking at it even during service. I don't know. I say that because in the first service, my phone buzzed, and I thought, oh, man. I just think we're so crowded. We're so crowded in. We're so busy. We've got the TV. We've got the Internet. We've got the phone. We've got the, you know, all these social media things. And when are we ever just quiet? Ecclesiastes 7, 8, and 9 says, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. What we have to do is learn that as God is working on us, the end is going to be better than the beginning, and the beginning was pretty good. (laughs) The beginning, we got saved, we're excited about the things of God, we know that our sins have been washed away, we've been given a clean slate, all these things we're excited about, Uh, then about a week later comes. And all of a sudden we realize, I've still got this sin nature. And we start to learn that God is working on us. He's trying to conform us. And we have to learn that what God is doing in our life, it's going to be better at the end than it was in the beginning. What this means is there's going to be things in between that that are going to be hard for you to go through. There's going to be things that are difficult to endure. But listen, don't get angry about it. For anger resteth in the bosom of a fool. But I want to encourage you to trust the Lord's working in your life. You say, well, I don't like it. I don't reckon Jesus liked going through this, do you? But it was necessary. It was the Father's will. Trust the Lord's working. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. So whatever you're going through this morning, trust God. Trust Him. Yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable at times. There's going to be some difficulties along the way. But trust Him. Trust God who judges righteously. Amen. Do you believe God knows what He's doing? Listen, He knows what He's doing in your life. All you got to do is trust Him and say, Lord, here am I. Give yourself to God's will for your life this morning. Say, Lord, whatever you want, you do. Wherever you send, I'll go. Let's pray.